we then teamed up with our machine learning team to look at the results of our customers year over year at chain-wide scale. So how much waste was there with the fresh versus how much was there before? Earlier this year, we learned that we prevented almost 5 million pounds of food waste and that that meant, uh, you know, in the 100 million range for greenhouse gas emission pounds prevented and similarly hundreds of millions of gallons of water loss prevented. That for me was an incredibly impactful moment. I got a little bit emotional just thinking that this scrappy small team was able to have that big of an impact. I'm Matt Schwartz. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Afresh. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Lampart, and today how Matt Schwartz set out to build the cornerstone solution for the fresh food industry. All this and more on Code Story. Matt Schwartz is a lover of food. It's been a huge part of his personal and professional life in such areas like evidence-based nutrition, exercise science, and the history and economics of our food system. As a kid, he was a picky eater. Over time, learning to eat better was a catalyst towards personal improvement for Matt. And he believes that food, more so than anything else, shapes the health of our planet and the health of us as individuals. But outside of food, he's become obsessed with chess and is being coached by a grandmaster. He's proud of the fact that one of his opponents resigned after seven moves. Beyond chess, he's always working through a good book. His current venture started by researching the food industry, specifically the world of fresh food. Post this, Matt and his team realized that this part of the food world was ripe for disruption. This is the creation story of a fresh. food industry broadly is a multi-trillion dollar global industry. And what we came to realize in the early days is that most, if not all of the technology that had been built for our food industry was built for stuff that comes in a package and has a barcode, as opposed to things like broccoli, bananas, salmon fillets, ribeyes, fresh, perishable food. The result of that in turn are that there are these massive inefficiencies that manifest in billions and billions of pounds of food waste that hurt our planet and billions and billions of dollars of lost profit that hurt the bottom line and result in prices being higher and people having less access to fresh food. As a result, we decided to build the fresh and what we're doing here is building the brain of the fresh food industry that powers all of the critical workflows and decisions that go from driving fresh food from a farm to a grocery store distribution center to the end store and ultimately your refrigerator at home such that you can get the fresh food you want at a lower price and ultimately have it last long enough for you to eat it as opposed to going bad in your fridge. All of that started with us researching the space because of my passion in food and the ability to investigate it in graduate school. And that culminated in us building our first product, which is a store level ordering solution for produce that gets the right amount of produce into every store every day 
to minimize food waste and maximize the profit of grocers. If, if you're building the brain through afresh, are you going to be kind of the layer, the, the data layer or the infrastructure layer around fresh food to where people can build on top of you? Or do you become the de facto solution for everything? It's a mix of both. There are countless decisions and workflows that are made between the time a head of broccoli, for example, leaves the farm and gets ultimately to the grocer's distribution center, to their stores, and then to your fridge at home or to a restaurant. And things like how many heads of broccoli should get delivered to the store? What, how many cases of broccoli should be on the shelf? Or what other types of broccoli? What vendors or growers or suppliers of broccoli should I choose to buy from if I'm a if I'm a business and many 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 more what we want to do is build applications for the most influential and critical decisions and workflows that exist in that ecosystem so like I mentioned we started off with store level ordering for grocery but over time, we'll build more and more of these applications that in turn and in some power the entire fresh food industry. And then there will be some pieces that might be more commoditized or areas where we feel like there won't be as big of an impact for us to make. And in those cases, we'll act more as a platform or in potentially serve those systems up with data that we generate to be more of a system of record. So. You know, one way of thinking about it over time is that we'll evolve into this ecosystem player that provides applications and also powers the industry more holistically. Well, tell me about the MVP. So tell me about that first product you built, how long it took, what sort of tools you used to bring it to life. So going back, we had just graduated from Stanford. My, one of my co-founders was in business school with me, but he was also technical and uh, had gotten his BS and MS in engineering from Stanford and was a lecturer there. And then our CTO had a PhD in computer science and AI from Stanford. So um, had deeply technical co-founders. And if I go back to how we actually did it, the first really critical piece was finding a grocer that had a big enough pain point to let us effectively experiment on their data and view their processes in the stores. And so specifically, again, we're building the store level ordering tool, an end to end solution that is saying I need 10 cases of bananas to order today as opposed to eight or six or five. And we had to discover the way that those grocers were doing it now. So how do they actually make that decision today? And then we had to figure out how to inject technology into it in a way that would be maximally effective. And that started with a bunch of discovery, eventually evolved into lean model building and building the backend and an MVP of the AI. And then eventually also there is a human interface component where we had to create these AI driven order recommendations, but then make sure that they were actually being ordered by the grocer. And back then we didn't have the permission to do a full integration with our initial partner. So we actually uh, created a Google sheet in which these recommendations would show up 
And then the store manager would take those orders and plug them into their system. So it was super scrappy and lightweight. And we did it relatively quickly, like in the course of a few weeks. I think that's a testament to our CTO's amazing technical prowess, not just in the AI landscape, but also being a really good engineer and also a whole bunch of grit and hustle on our part to be in grocery stores uh, every morning before the sun went up. So with any MVP, you have to make certain decisions and trade-offs about what you can do in the short term, right? And you, and you talked a little bit about about some of those, um, but dive into them a little more. What sort of decisions and trade-offs did you have to make around, like, we're only going to build this much, or we're only going to prove that this concept works this much, and, and how did you cope with those decisions? Candidly, for me, coming from more of the business side, I wanted to do it all. I think I was more naive when it came to technical products and just how much is truly feasible. And my technical co-founders had a bunch of experience building stuff and were wise enough to say, hey, we really can't do it all. And I think a really good example of this is the front end or you know, Google Sheets front end that I talked about. Um, this is a balance though, where I think in one version of the world, we would have just built the models. We would have just built a rough demand forecast and a rough order optimization logic that said eight bananas and just kind of dumped it off and or even just looked at those recommendations and compared it to what they ordered last year. We elected to take it a step further and do that Google Sheet and embrace the complexity of working with stores in a lean way that didn't require us to really build anything sophisticated. Again, just like a Google Sheet and talking to a store manager. And that balance of building just enough to build these recommendations, but investing the sort of sweat equity and labor into getting into stores, interacting with the end user and seeing the operation truly from end to end enabled us to realize the importance of that last step of the human's interaction, which at the end of the day, now looking back, is one of the critical competencies that we've had to invest in as an organization. And so high level, what I would say is that it was a lot of art where we had an intuition that there was a bare minimum on the modeling side of things, and then some persistence in making sure that even though building a full front end app would be pretty tough, um, we found a way around that to build something that was pretty lean, but still tested for the things that we needed to be successful. So you've got, you know, your early MVP created, you're starting to learn a ton and you're getting a little bit of traction on your idea. How did you progress the product from there and mature it? And I'm interested in how you built your roadmap and decided, okay, this is the next most important thing to build. The most critical next step was finding a customer that was willing to take the leap of faith and fully deploy our system. And I'm talking about not just like a tinkering with a prototype, but literally handing us the keys to ordering all of their fresh produce in this example, which is a really big deal. I mean, if you think about that, it's kind of insane to think that a grocer would, for the most critical function in their business, like if they don't have food on the shelves, they're not in business. Um, entrust a lean team like us to get the job done. 
And I think it really speaks to the absence of real alternatives that there were grocers out there that had pain points that strong that were willing to do that. So the first piece is really more on the commercial side, I would say, of finding a customer to give us the keys. And then once we had the keys, it was about making sure that the product was going to deliver and deliver in a really big way. And so I wish I could tell you in the answer to your question that we had a ridiculously disciplined roadmap and strategic set of considerations. For us, it was more existential where we needed to build something that really worked. And the result of that is that there were still some sub decisions like that wasn't simple in and of itself to figure out what was really going to work. What was really going to work, we had to make trade-offs across how much do we want to invest in the AI component of our system versus how much do we want to invest in data cleanliness and ensuring we've got a tight, scalable integration? And how much do we want to invest in the front end, the UX and the UI, and really understanding what's happening there? And how much do we want to invest in the inventory taking component of our system versus the day-to-day -day workflow of our system, which I could get into a bit more. And that again was really a huge amount of physically being in stores, experiencing the problems and pain points and trying to build something that was empathetically designed and effective for a specific context. And so um, in practice, it really was more of a linear upgrading of that MVP into something that would be enterprise worthy and ready to go um, to deliver at scale for our customers. Well, let's switch to team. So tell me how you built your team and what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? The team was absolutely critical in the early days and we invested a ton on the technical side of our organization first. And actually, if I have a learning that if we're, if we're going to get to talking about learnings, uh, I think I would have invested earlier in building out some of our commercial organization. I think we drove most of the sales, marketing, and non-technical aspects of our organization with me and my other non-technical co-founder, Nathan. Uh, but I think we would have been better served to invest more in that earlier. However, so to get back to your question, what we really were looking for were world-class technical talents, folks that could really enable us to build this system successfully. And I'd say that's one part of it. The second part of it is real missionaries, people that care at the end of the day about the social impact that we want to drive in reducing waste for our climate and increasing access to fresh food for people. And I remember an early anecdote of this with Sean, who's now our director of product engineering. We were introduced through one of our early investors and I met him at a coffee shop and we talked about his motivation for being vegetarian. We talked about my motivation for starting the company. And I also got to see his values of kindness and just how empathetic and genuine he was in wanting to have an impact. And I could tell that that intersection of deep passion for our space with his capability to go end to end on building the front end of our system was what we absolutely needed for one of those initial hires. And I think it's very emblematic of one of our early successful hires. Well, let's switch to scalability then. 
I know the answer from the MVP standpoint because it was a Google sheet. <laughs> so, but maybe a little bit past that, did you build this to scale efficiently from day one or are you fighting this as you grow? It's a mix. We understood that scalability and stability were paramount for any one of the stores and any one of the grocery chains that we work with. And concretely, we went straight to enterprise. So all of our deals are, um, I can't disclose like the specific deal size, but we're talking like large, large deals where again, these grocers are giving the keys over to do this critical function. And if a grocer is not in stock, they're not in business. So we could not mess up an order. And as a result, we were uh, ruthless about the scalability and stability of our system in the early days. That's, and, and I think we, we deployed every one of our customers on time and we did not have any uh, outages where it affected that order um, for any sort of incidents like that. And for that, we're really proud. I think there's a difference between that though and uh, a ability to scale from you know, an initial set of stores where we're now ordering about $1.5 billion of produce through our system every year and in almost 250 stores to going to thousands of stores and going north of 3,000, which is what we're looking to do this year. And when you're talking about that sort of scale, there's not just differences in degree, but also differences in kind and some broader rethinking of our infrastructure and platform to work through. Um, and also, if you think about adding a whole bunch of new customers, there's a whole bunch of dynamics also to thinking about our data infrastructure and platform that have to adapt to be able to enable us to effectively and rapidly integrate new customers in addition to maintain them at scale. And so there's a little bit of an iterative approach to this where we built sufficient infrastructure and scalability for those early days when it came to things like the actual uh, cloud service provider that we selected, the construction of the way that we train and build models, the way that we do the data integrations. Um, and then we've had to revisit uh, periodically to understand, okay, what does this look like when we're in thousands? What's it gonna look like when we're in tens of thousands? Um, and we're coming up on the thousands point. We're not yet at the, the tens of thousands point, but. Um, we're learning that these stages can come faster than you think. And as a result, being thoughtful proactively is important. As you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? I'll, I'll cheat and give you two moments. The first moment was we partnered, um, one of our advisors is the former executive director of ReFed, which is the nation's leading think tank on food waste. And we enlisted him to help us build an understanding of just how much food waste are we preventing and what is the impact of that. Um, in other words, uh, how many greenhouse gas emissions are we preventing and how many gallons of water loss are we preventing? And we then teamed up with our machine learning team to look at the results of our customers year over year at chain wide scale. So how much waste was there with the fresh versus how much was there before, and then using ReFed's methodology to convert it into these environmental indicators. And uh, earlier this year, and we've far exceeded these numbers now, we learned that we prevented almost 5 million pounds of food waste and that that meant, uh, you know, in the 100 million 
uh, coming up on range for greenhouse gas emission, tons prevented uh, or pounds prevented, and uh, uh, similarly hundreds of millions of gallons of water loss prevented. That for me was an incredibly impactful moment when Sawyer, our machine learning engineer, read off those numbers. Um, I got a little bit emotional just thinking that this scrappy small team was able to have that big of an impact um, on like a per person basis, driving hundreds of thousands of pounds of food waste prevention per person in our organization. Um, that was one moment. And then I think the second moment, uh, I, I could actually tell another story about learning about everybody on the team's motivation for working in food, which was super impactful. But given the technical nature of our conversation, I think the third most impactful thing was an anecdote that we got from an end user who told us that he had been working as a produce manager in the grocery industry for his whole career, for 35 years. And that interacting with the Afresh system and using it to empower him in his job was the single most impactful thing that he's done in his career. And I think that was an incredibly meaningful moment as well. Let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. I mentioned this earlier on the delayed focus of building out our commercial organization. I think this mistake was one that cost us the ability to grow even faster than we already have. And I think we focused really deeply on building a product that was going to knock it out of the park and be the best thing in the market for solving our problem. But I think that we could have bet on ourselves a bit earlier to thread the needle and say, as soon as that product is ready, we're going to step on the gas and sell the heck out of this thing. So that was something I wish we had done is maybe bring on our VP of sales and our marketing leader a bit sooner than we had done. But I love both of those people in our organization and who knows, maybe we wouldn't be so lucky as to have folks that are that talented if we if we hadn't done that um, and hindsight's 2020. So that's probably the biggest one that comes to mind for me. Well, what does the future look like for your product and for your team? The initial product that we built, this store level ordering tool for produce has and will prevent billions of pounds of food waste, I believe, in and of itself. And in and of itself, I think can be a massive financial product for us to sell. But it's really just the insertion point. And if I go back to this idea of building the brain of the fresh food industry, we have a long ways to go for us to be controlling and powering the most critical decisions and workflows across the industry. And very concretely, our customers and other ones in the industry have us asked us to power their meat and seafood departments, to power their food service departments, to power their decision making at the distribution center, like how many truckloads of a product should go into the store, to power their corporate workflows of how do they merchandise and think about which items they sell and how they sell them. And then even branching out into the convenience store market, the food service market, even restaurant groups over time, and doing all of this globally is the big journey that we're on to really fulfill our mission of eliminating waste and making fresh food accessible to everyone. I think that's the dynamic that we're then working through from a product expansion perspective, which is incredibly exciting. And then 
the other dynamic of our growth, which we're moving forward, is just simply grow, grow, grow. We are experiencing an insane level of demand from the market to roll out faster. Like I described, we're going from hundreds to thousands of stores just this year. And to do that, we need to, again, hit the gas commercially, but uh, build the system to be scalable uh, even for our existing product in a way that enables us to ingest all of that demand that exists within the market. Well, let's switch to you, Matt. Um, who influences the way that you work? A CEO, a CTO, architect, person, really any person. Name a person you look up to and why. I'm very fortunate to work with an executive coach and I'm a firm now huge believer in the value of coaching for business leaders and for frankly anyone. So my coach, uh, Ed Batista, I feel super fortunate to work with on a regular basis and make me better and better and better at my job. And uh, I'll tell you, there's nothing more humbling than starting a company that's growing for realizing just how quickly you can become incompetent in every new stage. And, uh, you know, it's a cliche that the job evolves every three to six months as a founder, but it's totally true. And you have to build those sort of capabilities. So I realize it's not a direct mentor necessarily, but I would go to my coach first and thinking through that. And when it comes to specific uh met you know sort of people that i really look up to i honestly wish that there were broader models of people that are starting social impact companies that are built massively for scale i think you can look at um you know any comparison to like elon musk and what he's doing is really fraught and potentially come across as like ridiculously egotistic but i find him to be really inspiring when it comes to the idea of like electrifying our automotive grid and broader grid and what he's done with tesla in that domain i think i really disagree with some of the ways that he goes about doing that and we would really look to find ways that intersect that massive massive ambition with also massive massive empathy and team building and compassion and things like this and as a result like i really would hope to find um, you know, a broader set of leaders out there and find folks that are have that level of ambition to impact the world beneficially and then do so in, in a kind and graceful way. So some mix of uh, mentors from uh, my executive coach to family to uh, having some inspiration from uh, other leaders like that. Well, we talked about, you know, mistake and, and you kind of lumped it into going back and doing it a different way. But I'm going to ask that again to see if there's another answer or to see if there's something even in your your life outside of a fresh that you would your professional life outside of a fresh you would do differently but if you could go back to the beginning what would you do differently or where would you consider taking a different approach i'll go to self-care and the personal journey i wish that i had learned the paramount value of self-care and it can feel and sound a little woo woo to talk about it like oh you know, something that I made as a mistake was working too hard or not giving myself enough space. But 
I really struggled, I think, early days and, and continue to work through dealing with the stresses of building such a fast-growing enterprises. It can affect my sleep, it can affect the way I think, it can um, affect my mood and all of these types of things. And at the end of the day, to be really effective, having the ability to regulate your emotions, act as a leader when you need to be, and make the hard decisions is absolutely critical. And so the mistake I'd say I made early on was just working around the clock and also feeling like every moment in the company was existential. And certainly there are moments early on where things really are existential. There are these make or break moments in the company, but over time, you realize that not any one moment, not any one conversation or day is gonna is gonna make or break you um, or the company. And to have a little bit more self-compassion and invest a bit more in things like sleep, meditation, exercise, eating well, journaling, spending time with loved ones and getting away from work to really enable you to be successful. So I think that's a different approach that I would have taken on a more personal level. Well, last question, Matt. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. They can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? It'd be a little bit tough because they've already built something. And, uh, you know, I think the first thing I would do is really challenge them to ensure that they've got product market fit or that they're building towards product market fit. I think the most, the biggest mistake, the absolute number one mistake that entrepreneurs make when they're trying to start something new is building, 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 and then letting something out into the wild and finding out that nobody wants it. And there's nuances here. Like I think that there are some people who say you really need, you don't need to necessarily validate. You know, people don't know what they want before you give it to them. And there's some truth to that. But I really believe that no matter what you're building, there are super lean approaches to making an MVP and validating your hypotheses about what's going to be valuable, what are people going to want um, before you actually spend all the time to go build the thing. And as a result, if I'm sitting on that plane next to that entrepreneur, I'd be asking them questions of, this is awesome. I think it looks cool. But like, have you tried selling it? Have you tried to understand who you're selling it to? What are they going to think about it? Do they know those things? And really helping them understand whether or not they have achieved product market fit or are on a path to achieving product market fit, which can be a little bit of like a, a wet blanket answer. I think everybody wants to go take that thing and say, damn, this is like really amazing on that plane. Like, let's go sell it. But at the end of the day, if you do that and you fail, you're just going to be in for a world of hurt when it comes to all the wasted time, energy uh, that you put into it. And uh, uh, that'd be a damn shame. That's solid advice. Well, Matt, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Afresh. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And I loved your thoughtful questions. And this concludes another chapter of Coat Story. Coat Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash Coat Story for just five to ten bucks a month. 
And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.